Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsradio.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies, 1500 AM and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And uh, the EU is putting the pressure on all these social media companies to pull any sort of terrorist-related content off within one hour. Hmm. And uh, there's quite a bit of controversy over that request. Uh, uh, Amazon's buying Ring for a billion dollars. It's an interesting. That's a pretty neat story. It is a very interesting story. Beware. Selfies make your nose look bigger. <laughs> it depends on how you take your selfie. There, there's a method to this. Unless you've got a very long arm. That's too They funny. make your nose look bigger. And I've got the facts on it. Really? Oh, yeah. It's very. It's a very big story. Ah. Cell phone manufacturer a little bit worried because people are keeping their old cell phones longer. And that's cutting down the uh, sales projection. That's Uh right. And so that's going to be tied with a story on how to extend the life of your cell phone, of your (laughs) smartphone. Now, Facebook's trying to deal with this Russia stuff. They were really behind the power curve on it. And uh, this week we're going to feature the man who developed the Unix operating system. Uh, And he is one of the, you know... While he was at Bell Laboratories, he's now working at uh, Google. His name's Ken Thompson. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. This is three weeks in a row. This is unprecedented. Yes. He's it's, there. It's impressive. It's impressive. Well, you know what it is? He, he, he put in for vacation. And he, oh. and he wants it to be, he wants a favorable, you know, decision. Right, because if... if you know, he messes up. We're like, you're already on vacation. Exactly. We got an email from Amara in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Jim, I've got window. I've got a Windows 10 laptop, and every time I reboot my computer, Microsoft OneDrive forces me to log in or create an account. It is annoying. How can, <laughs> how can I get rid of this pop-up that's coming up all the time? Enjoy the podcast, Amara in Fairfax. Well, Amara, it is annoying. That I see that same pop-up on my Windows 10 uh, computer every time I, um, I, you know, I, I reboot and log in. It asks me to, you know, log in to, um, to OneDrive, and um, you know, it is kind of a pain in the neck. Basically, if you don't have a OneDrive account, Microsoft is just going to annoy you until you get one, and <laughs> then, and then they're going to make. And then once you get one, and and you automatically back up stuff to OneDrive, they're going to have you keep logging into it over and over and over again. Okay, here's what you can do to fix the problem. The reason that it pops up when you first reboot, it's that it's in the it's in the startup. OneDrive is in the startup uh, routine, so the OneDrive uh, 
OneDrive program is loaded every time you start up because it's in the startup routine. So what you want to do is you want to you want to go and you want to disable that startup function. So so you can you can do this. You want to go to the task manager, bring up the task manager. And I mean, you could, there's a shortcut. You can go Control Shift Escape, and it'll bring up Task Manager, or you can just go to the uh, go to Settings and, and bring up Task Manager. And once the Task Manager is up, down in the lower right hand or lower left hand corner, there's a little symbol that's for more details. Click on that, and uh, and another screen comes up, and there will be a tab that um, that one of the tabs is the Startup tab. So click the Startup tab, and it will list every single program that automatically starts up every time you reboot your computer. And just scroll down till you see Microsoft OneDrive, and then highlight it, and then click Disable. And you disable that program, and then it will not load Microsoft OneDrive uh, connection every time you boot up, and their pop-up will go away. Ah. And, of course, you always, I guess you could always say something to OneDrive, but then, you, but then you could manually turn on OneDrive to do the saving. Now, if you never implant, if you never actually plan to use OneDrive, you could just uninstall it. So that that's easy. You can just go to you can just go to the programs and click apps. Go down to Microsoft OneDrive. You go down to apps and features. Go down and then you highlight the Microsoft OneDrive and just click one and uninstall and it is gone. Hmm. Now, actually, OneDrive is not too bad of a deal if you've got a, a Windows 365 uh, account because you want to have the online Windows. Microsoft Office program, not Windows 365, Microsoft Office 365. So you, you, you've got the online Word and Excel and PowerPoint. If you've got that and, and you're paying like the, the regular annual subscription for your Office 365, you have one terabyte of OneDrive space provided for that. So you've got one terabyte of storage if you've got, if you've got that account. So if you've got one terabyte of storage, you might as well Use it so you may decide that you want to use OneDrive to back up all your pictures and do it, do all of that. What I mean, actually, what I'm doing because I just believe in redundancy. I'm backing up all of my stuff to Carbonite. I'm backing up all my stuff to OneDrive, and I'm backing up other key files to Dropbox. So, plus I've got my my laptop. So when my um, when my laptop was run over that time that my wife... That time. Uh, that my oh, wife, you were not going to divulge the name of the oh, offending party. That, that, that time that somebody in the household there drove off with the with, with my with my laptop on the roof, and then it was left in the middle of the street, and uh -huh. people ran over it. Well, that time when I totally lost my laptop, turned out I, I didn't lose any files because I had so many backups, and it was really quite uh, quite convenient. So... That's a good question, and it, and I, I have to admit that OneDrive popping up to log in is annoying. It even on my computer it even says, "Would you like to remember this this computer?" And I say yes, but then it doesn't remember it, and it pops up, and I got to log in again. So I'm going to try to figure out how to make it so I only have to log in once, not every time I open up the computer. We got an email from Helen in Rockville, dear Tech Talk. I would like to automate some of the tasks in Word. I belong to this nonprofit, and I've got to do a lot of formatting. And I'm sitting here just doing the same thing over and over, formatting the particular thing, pasting, and stuff. It just is 
a lot of redundant work, and I'd like to automate this process. How can I how can I do that in Microsoft Word? I've heard that there's a way to automate it, but the problem is I'm not a programmer, so I don't I don't know how to write a program to automate it. You know, so that's my problem. Well, Helen, the good news is you don't have to be a programmer to automate Microsoft Word. They have something called macros, and a macro is actually a program that you can activate either by pressing a button, a macro button, or by using a keyboard shortcut, depending on which you prefer. And once you activate it, the little program runs and does whatever you want. And you don't have to program it. You just demonstrate it. What you do is you just, you just you know, when you create the macro, you just go through the steps that you want to automate, and Word will watch you go through the steps, and it will write the program that will do it for you, and it will save the macro. So this is what you want to do. This is how you do it. Just open up a, um, a blank Word document first, and at the top, you'll see in the, in the menu, there's something called View. Click on View, the View tab. And then on the very right-hand side, there's something called Macros. So click on the Macro drop-down menu, and then click Record Macro. That's the key. Now you're, you're going to be able to record the macro. Now you've got to name the macro, so it's, a, it's very important to give a name to the macro and make, give it a name that makes sense. So, you know, two years from now you know which macro it is and write a brief description of what you plan to do. Then you have to decide how I'm going to activate the macro. And you choose either a button, which is going to be in the, in the menu at the top. It'll be a macro button that you can click. Or do you want it, a keyboard shortcut? You pick which one you want, how you want to activate it. And you also have to store, tell them how you want to store your macro. For instance, if you want it to be a macro that's available to all Word programs across the board, then it's stored in the normal style sheet, the normal dot, normal dot, dot M, as they call it. And that's the normal style sheet. And then it's available to all programs that use the standard normal style sheet. Now you could also save it to just this document if you want. And then you would and it would only be in the style sheet for this document. So you have to decide where it's going to be stored. And now after you've done that, click OK. So now you've named it, you said how I'm going to activate it and where I'm going to store it. Then what you want to do, if you you, you have to then if you cho if you chose for instance that you wanted to activate it with button you have to tell it where you want the button to be located, and that will give you a screen, and then you can add a button to the uh, to the taskbar at the top. Now, if you said that you want to do a keyboard shortcut, it will, you'll have to tell it little another window pops up, and you tell it you, you you highlight the name of the macro you're doing, and then you can put in the keyboard commands that you want, like Control Q C or whatever you know, whatever you want to do, and it will remember. Those and then you can click the assign button and then that that keyboard shortcut is assigned. So now once you've done that, if you've got the button or the shortcut assignment, you know where it's saved. You've got it named. Now you're ready to create it. So you click the create button, and at this time you just start going through the steps that you're trying to automate, whatever it is. You could just you just walk right through the steps whenever you're going to automate it. Now if you're halfway through the steps and you say, wait a minute here, I got to do a little check something out, I'm not sure what my next step is, you can you can pause the recording, go off and do something, then you can come back to this window and you can click resume and it will start recording all your steps. And then when you're finished, you just click stop recording. And at that moment, the macro will be written and saved. 
and it's available for you. Then to run the macro, you either push the button or you can uh, or you can use the keyboard shortcut. By the way, these macros are available not only for Microsoft Word, but they're in Excel, PowerPoint, and Access. So Microsoft has made it very easy for non-programmers to automate Microsoft Office. Pretty cool. Yeah, we got an email from Brian in Kansas. Dear Tech Talk, I have a dilemma. Employers will not hire me for an IT job without experience. And I cannot get experience without a job. Now, it seems like an impossible situation. It's like the chicken and egg. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? What comes first, the job or the experience? What would you recommend for someone just starting out like me, Brian in Kansas? Well, this is a frustrating dilemma, Brian, because... But you're not the only one dealing with it. Career fields such as IT rely on precise technical skills, and often employers want proof that the candidate can deliver on those skills before they hire them. When, and so you're a beginner. So how can you prove that you've got the skills? Well, here are a few things that you could do that actually work for our students, because we, we, we're confronted with the same thing with all of our IT students, both the undergraduate level at the graduate level. First of all, do some projects at home. Build something at home. Build a server. You could build a, um, a web, a, you know, a web system. You could build, uh, you could set up a Wi-Fi network with all kinds of routing. You could, you, you could actually have your web page connected to the internet by, you know, by porting, by setting up the ports correctly. You could, uh, you could do programming at home. You could set up a database. Pick something that's interesting to you and just set up a lab and just do it at home. Because I can tell you, when you go and you apply for a job, if you say you got a, you got an IT lab at home and this is what you're working on, it shows enthusiasm and dedication, and employers like that. And then you can talk about what you've actually uh, done, and um, and and once you feel comfortable with you know the skills you've you've done at your for your yourself, you can then volunteer to help your neighbors and your family and your friends, and you can become the IT go-to guy for your whole extended family, and that will give you real experience that you can talk about. <clears throat> now, the second thing you could do would be earn some certifications. There are certifications out there. You can, you know, you can study for a few days, pass a test. It's very narrow, very, very narrow knowledge, but employers like it because then it can prove that you, in this one narrow area, you've nailed it. And so certifications might cost you $100 or something to get, but it's not a bad way for somebody starting out to get some very specific certifications, then you could get a certification in, like, say, Linux operating system or a database certification or a hardware certification. That's always something very, a very good idea. You can also volunteer your services for businesses. There are a lot of charities out there that just don't have anybody to set up their web page or to run their network or to come in and do virus scans on their computers or to install new computers or to set up a network there are a lot of charities and a lot of churches that just really need help. Volunteer. Volunteer to help these charities or these churches or the, any nonprofit. And instead of charging compensation, just say, look, all I want is a nice recommendation from you saying that what I did for you and how pleased you were with it. That's also a very good angle. And that's as good as experience, really. You could also, you know, you could become an intern. You could become an unpaid intern. Many schools have have internship programs either for credit or not for credit doesn't matter some are paid some are not paid these internship jobs are pretty good you can check your local job boards 
You can also, if there's a company that you're interested in, just call up their HR department and say, look, you're interested in being an intern there. And, you know, you could be an unpaid intern for them for a while. Right. And they may, they, they may just, they just may just uh, create that position for you. And, and many uh, companies like to do that because it, it feels like they they feel like they're giving back to the community. When you have an internship position and you're providing your services for free, the employer has an obligation to teach you so you get value from the experience. And so it's uh, it and and they get free labor, but you get value in terms of what you learn. So it's it's a very good trade-off. And if they like what you do and there's a position open, sometimes these internships right place at the right time, that's, you want it with a job. That's right. And then of course you want to network. You want to go out, you want to act like a professional. So that means you want to join the professional organizations if there are any meetings, any any User groups in the area, database user groups, Linux user groups, Microsoft user groups, Oracle user groups, they're all over the place. Join these user groups and just show up at the meetings and help out and start talking to the people there and find out what they're interested in. You might find a mentor. And if you are connected to the industry through these groups, you already look like you're part of them and you behave like them. And you can also, it, they also tell you what's worth learning, what's, you know, how you could craft your career and it's a very good way to get into an into a new field through a referral rather than just trying to hit the one ads and right and of course you always have the option which of course of getting educated that's what students do at stratford they'll come to stratford they'll get a very specific degree with a lot of hands-on and then they'll use the stratford university career services to place them so that's all these are all various options that cost various degrees of dollars and uh, take different amounts of time, but they're all ways for somebody entering the IT field to get a job without any experience. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can, or certainly on the next show. It's Saturday morning, and this is Tech Talk Radio. We're heard in Washington, D.C. on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2. On the web at stratford.edu, scroll down to the bottom right of the page and click on Tech Talk Radio to learn more about and listen to past shows of Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. Ready to make a real difference in 2018? A degree in cybersecurity, digital forensics, or networking and telecommunications could help you secure your future as you help secure the world. Stratford University is now enrolling for career-focused IT degree programs on campus and online. Let Stratford's experienced IT faculty share their industry knowledge and practical solutions to help you succeed in today's most sought-after IT fields with accelerated classes and year-round program starts to help you earn your degree faster with demand at record high levels for cybersecurity, digital forensics and networking telecommunications careers now is the time to act stratford makes it easy turning your qualified experience into credits earned and if you're a vet they'll help you maximize your military benefits get complete details and register today at stratford.edu slash 18 it that's stratford.edu slash 18 it If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. 
IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers, here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Kenneth Lane Thompson. Now, his friends just call him Ken. Yeah. But his mom, of course. Kenneth Ken Lane, Lane, come in for dinner. <laughs> Kenneth Lane Thompson is best known for designing and implementing the original Unix operating system. He also invented the programming language B, which was a precursor to the language C. And most recently, he was a co-developer of the programming language at Google called Go. Thompson was born February 4, 1943 in New Orleans. He was always fascinated with mathematics and logic. In fact, in grade school, he loved to do his arithmetic problems in binary I mean, if you can imagine, the teacher gives me addition and subtraction and multiplication tables. Instead of turning it in in base 10, he converts all the numbers to binary and turns them in. And his teacher has to grade the answers in binary. I think he just, That's, lo- yeah. he just loved doing that. He just loved mathematical logic. Now, Thompson received a Bachelor of Science in 1965 and a Master of Science in 1966, both in electrical engineering and computer science from the University of California at Berkeley, UC Berkeley. He was hired in Bell Labs when he got his master's degree in 1966. Now, Thomas Thompson and Dennis Ritchie worked together on a Multix operating system, which, uh, which um, you know, Bell Labs was participating in. And while writing Multix, he created a programming language, which he called BON, a BON programming language that made it more convenient to work with the operating system. He also created a, a video game that ran on Multix called Space Travel. He was a gaming guy. Then when Bell Labs withdrew from the Multix program, the Multix operating system program, they couldn't run Multix anymore. And he had a problem because space travel only ran on Multix. So he went around the Bell Labs and he found an old PDP-11 machine and he rewrote the space travel program to run on the PDP-7. Now this was a side. It was a side, side project. Bar. It was mm-hmm. a side project, and so he had to do. He had to create an entire operating system for the PDP-7 in order to run space travel. It turned out that that operating system that he ran for, that he wrote for the PDP-7 to play space travel, became the Unix operating system. Wow! So. So uh, Ken developed uh, the first three versions of Unix himself, and and he had, and his friend uh, Richie um, and he had, his friend Richie there was uh, was um, actually his evangelist, telling everybody how great this Unix operating system was. And finally, his friend Richie decided uh, uh, Dennis Richie was his full name, Dennis Richie, and the, finally Dennis decided. This is so good, I want to be part of it. So Dennis Ritchie started working with him to sort of evolve and develop Unix beyond that. So later versions of Unix were written by both Dennis Ritchie and Ken Thompson. But the first three versions were written by Ken by himself. Now, he decided that Unix needed a programming language. 
in order to uh, function. You know, if you wanted the operating system to talk directly to the hardware, you need a programming language that's very convenient to use. And you, it would be nice if you could have a programming language where you could use that programming language to make additions and changes to the operating system. So he created what would become, Ritchie created what would become the programming language C. You see, Thompson created the programming language for Unix he called B, which was pretty good. But when Ritchie got involved, he said, wait a minute, I think we could improve this B programming language. So Ritchie then developed an additional programming language that they could use for this operating system, which then became the C programming language, and that became a hugely popular programming language, C. And that was written by Ritchie, um, Dennis Ritchie, after uh, Ken Thompson had finished writing B and laid the framework for it. They just made a better version of it with C. In 19, now for the first time in 1970, it, it, it actually initially didn't have a Unix. It wasn't called Unix in the beginning. I mean, it was just an operating system that ran space travel. But in 1970, they ported the Unix operating system that he, that he had written for the PDP-7, they ported it over to a PDP-11. Mm-hmm. This is this was one of the latest versions of the uh, of, of of the PDP micro microcomputer. They ported it over the PDP-11, and this port, by the way, was funded by Bell Laboratories' internal research project, and it was funded as an operating system for a word processor. So how they sold this to management, they said, look. You know, we need a word processor to write all of our manuals and all, and we're going to create this operating system that will run on PDP-11 that we can use for, you know, formatting all of our, you know, you know, procedure manuals. And so they said, okay, that's good. So they paid for this port over to the PDP-11. Now, of course, that also meant that space travel would run on the PDP-11, but see, he had to get it funded, so he had to have a management excuse for it. Now, they didn't have a name for the Unix system, but... Brian Kernigan, who was uh, one of the guys at Bell Labs, he suggested the name Unix, and it was a kind of a pun on the old Multics. So they couldn't work on Multics, so now they work on Unix. So it was it was kind of a pun and a joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, then so they said, and the and the name Unix stuck. That was back in 1970. Now, if you remember AT and T, this was back when AT and T. This is where they they had both the um, both the home phone as well as the long lines. And remember, it was part of the whole Bell Lab deal. Whole, it was part of the whole Bell Lab system, and there were these antitrust rules against them, and they did not want them to have a monopoly. And one of the rules uh, in the antitrust settlement against Bell Labs and AT and T was that they could not be in the computer business. They did not want them to get out of telecommunications and all of a sudden get into the computer business and use their monopoly to take over the computer business. So they were barred from actually developing and selling computers. So they had this fantastic operating system there, but they could not market it or sell it because of antitrust. So for that reason, they made Unix available to universities, to commercial firms, and to the U.S. government under open, basically open source licenses, so you could just use it for free. And the only constraint that that you you, you had to attribute it, you, you had to give attribution to AT and T, and you couldn't 
There were certain pro- you just couldn't change it willy nilly. So there were certain constraints to it, but the, but it was given to them free. And it turned out at the same time, the PDP eleven became the computer of choice at universities. The university just loved the PDP eleven for their operating system. So there were PDP elevens all over all the universities. The and of course the Unix operating system ran on the PDP eleven. So guess what? Unix became the operating system of choice at universities. And so it just was ubiquitous in academia. In 1975, Thompson helped install version 6 Unix on the PDP-11 at his old alma mater at Berkeley. And then Berkeley maintained their own version. They started improving it like open source software. They started improving it, maintaining it. And that version or that fork of Unix became known as the Berkeley Software Distribution, BSD. And the Berkeley Software Distribution, by the way, is the distribution that that the um, Macintosh operating system is based on. When Steve Jobs came back, he and he, he, he created an operating system. He based it on Berkeley BSD. Now Thompson created also he he liked he liked games he with with another guy there at, at Bell Labs John Condon he created the hardware and software for a world champion chess computer and this thing had built in all the rules and it would calculate and it would play chess with people and it was actually quite good he created the end game he figured out every possible combination at the end of the game, if you had three pieces left, five pieces left, I mean four pieces left, five pieces left, or six pieces left. And so he created the end game matrices so that once the game reached the point where there were just four, five, or six pieces left on the board, the machine knew exactly what the best way was to play and how to get through it. Now, throughout the 1980s, Thompson and Ritchie uh, revised the research Unix. That was the Unix there at, at Bell Labs. And they ended up adopting the, Ber- the Berkeley software distribution code base for, for the 8th edition of Unix, the 9th edition of Unix, and the 10th edition of Unix. So this thing, they pretty much, you know, Ritchie and Thompson pretty much, pretty much devoted their lives to, you know, de- deploying this Unix operating system. In 1990. And, oh, then what happened? Then Bell Labs decided, hey, we want to we want to develop another operating system. So they began implementing a new and improved operating system, which which is called Plan Nine. And um, Ritchie uh, was instrumental in the design and implementation of Plan Nine operating system at Bell Labs, and it was a new operating system that used the the principles of Unix, but it was op- optimized for the hardware and hardware systems that were present within Bell Labs. In 1992, Thompson developed UTF-8. This is the, this is the Unicode um, encoding standard. And this is really important. Have you ever noticed, uh, you know, like it, 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 if you wanted to have letters like a, like a like really complicated uh, alphabet, like if you wanted to have, say, Chinese characters or characters with a lot of different from different countries where you need many, many, many characters. You needed a different way to encode that because there were so many characters, not just 26 letters. So he developed UTF-8 where they could encode uh, they could encode uh, more uh, larger character sets. And this UTF-8 became 
the dominant character encoding system for the web. It became the standard web. So like, like the like the the podcast, the Tech Talk Radio podcast is is actually encoded in UTF-8, for instance. Huh. Right at the right at the top, it says UTF-8 encoding. In the late 2000, Thompson retired from Bell Labs. So let's see, he started Bell Labs in 66 and retired in 2000. So that would be about um, 30, 30, uh, 34 years. Mm-hmm. After 34 years at Bell Labs, he left and he, went, he worked for a small company called Entrosphere. He was a fellow there. And he stayed there for until 2006 uh, as, a, as, as, as a research fellow. And finally, in 2006, he was hired by Google as a distinguished engineer. And, he, uh, and he's been working on some high-level projects there at Google. His most recent project was a code—he he, he called it—he co-designed a new programming language called Go— he did it with Rob Pike and Robert Greisimer. Now, Go, it turns out that uh, Ken Thompson, Rob Pike, and Robert Greisimer, they all hate C++. <laughs> C++ was a programming language based on C, but it was, they were trying, it was, you were using constructs to make it object-oriented programming. And they did it in, in a way that was very complicated, and they just hated it. So they wanted something that would replace C++, that w- that had much simpler context. It was object-oriented, but it was a simpler language, simpler to learn. So they developed Go. And uh, Google released Go uh, as an open-source programming language, and many of, their back, many of their platforms and back-end programming at Google are now done with Go. Now, according to a 2009 interview, Thompson, if people say, what kind of computer do you use? He uses a Linux operating system on his own. So he's not using well, – his Linux is actually a port of Unix that will run on a, just a regular PC that will run on an Intel chip. So, and so he, he's running a Linux operating system on his, uh, on his own PC. Now, he has won many, many awards. I mean, I did, just, he's won dozens of awards. Probably the most significant award was the Turing Award. Thompson and Ritchie won the Turing Award. This is like the premier award in computer science. In 1983, they won that award for their development of a of generic operating system theory and the application of that operation theory specifically to the robust operating system Unix. So that's quite an achievement. Kenneth Lane Thompson. He's a real programmer who's made a significant impact in computer operating systems. There you go. It is Saturday morning, and you're listening to Tech Talk Radio on 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, Federal News Radio. You can actually watch us do the show by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
Ready to make a real difference in 2018? A degree in cybersecurity, digital forensics, or networking and telecommunications could help you secure your future as you help secure the world. Stratford University is now enrolling for career-focused IT degree programs on campus and online. Let Stratford's experienced IT faculty share their industry knowledge and practical solutions to help you succeed in today's most sought-after IT fields with accelerated classes and year-round program starts to help you earn your degree faster with demand at record high levels for cybersecurity. Digital forensics and networking telecommunications careers, now is the time to act. Stratford makes it easy, turning your qualified experience into credits earned, and if you're a vet, they'll help you maximize your military benefits. Get complete details and register today at stratford.edu slash 18IT. That's stratford.edu slash 18IT. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, thank you, thank you. Please sit down, sit down. Yes, but thank you, thank you. No, calm down, please. I know you're excited. <laughs> They're listening you know, to technology you just really gets, it people, gets people excited. It gets people all worked up. Yes, yeah, it does. It's, oh, it probably even better than a, than a beer. We got just the, one. Just one beer. <laughs> yes, early. This is a classroom of the airways, yes. of course. Yes, we as, forget. As a classroom of the airways, we do have to teach, and then we have to assess whether that teaching has been effective. And we do that with a pop quiz. Mm-hmm. And if you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you will win tickets to fine dining at the Strap University dining rooms, and you'll also get an A plus for today's show, which goes a long way. It really counts a lot. It counts a lot. You know, you, you can you can take that home, that report card home, and just show off to your kids. Yeah. Now earlier in the show, we talked about. Kenneth Lane Thompson, the man who developed the original Unix operating system, and he also invented the programming languages B and Go. Now, there he was working on a, an operating system called Multics, and they ended that Multic, they ended the Multic system over. They ended it, and then something motivated him to develop the Unix operating system. He wanted to get something done. And that was the motivating factor that 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 sort of got him started in the development of the Unix operating system. What was that motivating factor? If you know the answer to the question, for crying out loud, pick up the phone and call us now. If you're calling from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, the number is 877-936-9333. If you're waiting for the wind to die down in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. The international line is dust in the wind. If you're calling us from Skyline Drive, trying to avoid all that wind... Oh, yeah, that's a good place to avoid wind. You can reach us on Skype. Simply connect to Tech Talk Radio 1 in your 
Call will be forwarded to the studio free of charge. Andrew Mitchell, our adjunct professor for prize distribution and crowd control, is standing by to take your call, so dial now. Okay. Okay, beware. Selfies make your nose look bigger. I know some people who take some really <laughs> awful selfies. Now, listen, this is, a you know, the short distance from the camera combined with the wide angle of the lens makes your nose look larger, according to... The Journal of Facial Plastic Surgery. <laughs> Distorted self-portraits are leading to more people requesting nose jobs oh, to, to make better selfies. In 2017, 55% of the facial plastic surgeons reported seeing patients who wanted to look better in selfies. That's up from 13% the prior year. And the primary way to look better in selfies is to make your nose smaller. I can think of some other things. I know. People this, have a tendency to take these pictures from down low. Oh, and when but, you get to be our age, like when you're, that, that, you're 32, I'm 27, that, right? That doesn't, you have this stuff right. under your neck. And when yeah. you take it from down low, it doesn't look you good. need to go up high. Yes. Go up high. That's another factor. But we're just focused on the nose right Okay, now. I'm According sorry. According to, to the JAMA study, JAMA, JAMA the, uh, this is the Journal of the American Medical Association, Facial Plastic Surgery, JAMA. Uh, this study break down the selfie face using a model from the Stanford's Department of Computer Sciences. Now, quantify how much the selfies increase the nose size. Research fellow Ohad Freed came up with a mathematical model of the face. His model revealed... That if you take a selfie 12 inches from the face, that's really close. That is very close. That's too close. That's going to be all face all the time. That it will make your nose look 30% bigger. <laughs> <laughs> and it will make the tip of your nose appear 7% wider. Then if the photo were snapped at 5 feet away, which is, you know, it takes a very long arm for that. So therein lies the problem. That is a problem. That is the problem. So beware. Selfies make your nose look bigger. Remember, up, up high, not down low. And up high. That's up right. high. That's okay, right. There you go. Yeah. Wait a minute. There's the music. <laughs> it's time for us to play our little okay. game. Let's do that. Let's go to line numero uno. This is Lewis calling us from Rockville, Maryland. Good morning, Lewis. How are you, sir? Good morning, sir. Good morning, Good. Lewis. Dr. Schertz, please ask the question. Yes, early in the show we talked about Kenneth Lane Thompson, the man, of course, who developed the Unix operating system. What motivated him to develop the Unix operating system? Space travel. There you go. Space travel. Yes. That it is was space. correct. Took us a minute. We got it. Yeah, very and, uh, good. Lewis, thank you for... What's that? I would like to talk to Justin. Uh, well, we have, we're kind of on a strict time thing here, so we got to run. I'm going to put you on a hold, and we're going to let you talk to Andrew, and he's going to take your information, and we'll get the prize out to you. It's Saturday morning, and you're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, 820 AM, and, and make that 103.5 FM HD2 and 103.9 FM HD2. That's where we are. You can watch us do the show by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at... WFE Tech Talk. We'll be back in just a minute. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
Ready to make a real difference in 2018? A degree in cybersecurity, digital forensics, or networking and telecommunications could help you secure your future as you help secure the world. Stratford University is now enrolling for career-focused IT degree programs on campus and online. Let Stratford's experienced IT faculty share their industry knowledge and practical solutions to help you succeed in today's most sought-after IT fields with accelerated classes and year-round program starts to help you earn your degree faster with demand at record high levels for cybersecurity, digital forensics, and networking telecommunications careers. Now is the time to act. Stratford makes it easy, turning your qualified experience into credits earned, and if you're a vet, they'll help you maximize your military benefits. Get complete details and register today at stratford.edu slash 18IT. That's stratford.edu slash 18IT. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Amazon is buying Ring. That's the company that makes the smart doorbells. And it, although they have not announced the price, analysts are estimating that Amazon is going to pay more than $1 billion for Ring. Isn't that crazy? Well, it's not crazy because have you, have you seen a Ring doorbell? It, they're they're, they're nice. great. They are. They're really nice. But what's interesting, when Ring was on Shark Tank, yeah. they were absolutely rejected. Mm-hmm. Completely rejected. I'll talk a bit about that. But now they're worth a billion dollars. Now, Ring CEO and founder Jamie Siminoff said that achieving success wasn't very easy. When he went on to Shark Tank in 2013, he was pitching what he called the DoorBot, a Wi-Fi-enabled doorbell. All the investors but Kevin O'Leary passed, and Kevin O'Leary made a terrible offer, which he rejected, and so there was no deal on DoorBot. And he was really bummed out after that show. He said he spent $10,000 building props for the pitch. No kidding. The company's staff of eight had spent a month preparing for the show. Wow. They really put, they went all in, but they didn't get an investor, and it seemed like all their efforts were just down the toilet. But after he appeared on Shark Tank, his business saw an immense growth. I mean, it's now been four years since Shark Tank, and his business is now valued at more than a billion dollars. Now, he likes to re- recount uh, back, back in 2010 when he got the idea. 2010, he, he was setting up a shop in his garage because he's always been like a tinkerer. Mm-hmm. He'd been starting businesses. He started one business he sold for $17 million, starting another business. He liked to tinker in the garage. So he was tinkering in the garage, uh, you know, set up his shop in the garage so he could tinker. And But he had a problem. When he was in the garage working, he could not hear the doorbell, uh, you know, from his workspace. Somebody would ring the doorbell in the front door. He couldn't hear it, and then they'd go away. So he was trying to figure out, how can I hear the doorbell from the garage? So he, he went online looking for some sort of networked or Wi-Fi doorbell, and there was nothing. So he ended up building himself his own Wi-Fi doorbell. So, he, he, he you know, he got the doorbell, hooked it to the Wi-Fi network, and then... Whenever it would ring, it would ring in the garage. And so he was saying, well, this is nice because I, now I can keep inventing in the garage and I can hear the doorbell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, he, then he, he, he put sort of a makeshift camera on it so he could see who was out there. 
And, you know, he just, he thought, well, this is convenient. I can work in the garage. And if it's, if it's somebody I don't want to see, I don't have to go, I don't have to open the door. So he, he didn't even view this as any kind of business venture at all. It was just enabled him to work on the real businesses. Well, he showed it to his wife and she loved the idea. She mm -hmm. said, wow, I love the idea of being able to see who's at, on the other side of the door. She said, I feel a lot safer if I know who's out there before I open up the sure. door. See, he never thought of that as a man. Well, and the other thing is, I know somebody who got it just for that reason, for security. Uh -huh. You can be anywhere in the world, and you can see who's messing around at your front door. Yeah. So, so then, so then he thought, well, this is a pretty good idea. So he started working on this thing, and that's when he came up with Doorbot, and he took it to a Shark Tank in 2012. This was two years after he got the or no. He, Door, Doorbot launched in 2012, and he and he and he got on Shark Tank in 2013. Now. I mean, it turns out that Lori, uh, who's who's the uh, who's the QVC guy, you know, selling some. She said, "Well, this will never sell on QVC." It it's he he said he, he took his products on QVC and they sold 140 million dollars worth of product in 24 hours. Oh my god! It was the biggest QVC event that they'd ever wow. had. So Lori was completely wrong. That's and crazy. so the, the guys, the guys at Shark Tank were completely wrong. I wonder if you know that that kind of sales. I wonder if they had to scramble to make these things if they had the inventory to cover they, that. They they had well see what what happened was when they went to Shark Tank they 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 hardly had any sales. He had eight he had eight employees. He was almost out of money. And uh and he wouldn't be able to make payroll because he couldn't sell enough to keep eight people on the payroll and he was just he was like, you know, a nano, he was like a millimeter from bankruptcy. This was like a, a a Hail Mary pass. That's right. And so he showed up on Shark Tank, and, and, he, and he walked out. He didn't get a deal. And he says, man, I sunk all this money in Shark Tank, and I don't have a deal. I'm, I'm down, and I'm mm -hmm. out. But it turned out that the visibility in Shark Tank was enormous, and all of a sudden they started selling doorbells. And the first year after Shark Tank, their sales grew to three million dollars mm. the first year, and then the and the business kept growing and growing and growing. Now he didn't want to be a one product business, so he started building. And once he got this idea of home security, not just a remote doorbell, he started adding all kinds of other types of devices. Now he's got ten devices. He's got a whole suite of home security systems, and uh, and Amazon wants to get it and. It, and why does Amazon want it? Because oh, I, think about it. Amazon wants to get into your house to deliver packages. Exactly. They want to get into your house, and they they want to own the whole home network. So you've got Apple wants to own your network. You've got Google wants to own the home. Now Amazon wants to own the home. So they like Amazon Echo mm -hmm. is in the home, and they want it to control all, all the smart home devices. So they want this integrated with Echo. They are going after the home as the next big market. First of all, I wonder if this scares folks like FedEx because this is going to put a dent into what in, into their delivery, don't you think? It could. Um, it's, it's possible. But but also, th so they want to get into your home. Uh -huh. So think about this. Think about how much time Amazon wastes trying to get into places for which they don't have access. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like for instance, I ordered something from Amazon the other day, and I, there was a new uh, page view on the order sheet. They mm -hmm. asked me to give them. The entry code to the building, mm -hmm. so they get in because otherwise I'm in and out of the building all the time. The Amazon guy is standing outside waiting for somebody to let him in. Imagine how much time they waste yeah, doing wow. that. And the other thing is how much money is lost with stolen packages. That's right. So this is a brilliant idea. 
You know what Amazon's also doing? They're also taking a picture of the package on your front porch when they drop it off. Really? They started that in, in limited northern Virginia. They started it. And I I've, I actually got a picture sent to me. They said, we've dropped your picture. You know, your package was delivered at 3, at 3 p.m. And I got a picture of it sitting on the front porch and exactly where it was located. So th- does that absolve – if somebody steals it, does that absolve them of um... – no, but no. It, but it proves to the homeowner that it was, that it was there. delivered, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. the thing is the homeowner doesn't know whether the delivery guy just didn't deliver Good it point. and said he was going to deliver it or whether it was stolen. Mm-hmm. This way, Amazon can say it was clearly stolen. Right, I see. And I see. so and so that that's really good information it for is. them. Yeah. Great idea. Okay, the EU companies are really trying to put pressure on Google and Facebook um, and all these social media companies trying to get terrorist content off the web. They, they quickly. They, there's been a lot of research in these, you know, these uh, bogus these guys that, you know, you know, claim to be religious but actually they're terrorists put these very attractive videos and marketing materials on the web to try to recruit. And recruiting over the web is the number one recruiting avenue. And the research has shown that when something is posted, it is most effective in the first hour or two after it's posted when when it goes viral. And so Google, or rather the European Union, wants the companies to detect it and remove it within an hour, within 24 hours, within Mm. one day. Went on within one hour. They want it removed within one hour, and uh, or else they're going to change the law uh, as to how these companies can operate in Europe. Now, according to the Computer and Communication Industry Association, they say that one hour is too short. That you know, they need a little bit more time than that. Maybe they don't need the full 24 hours, but one hour is too short, and they're negotiating with the EU. They're trying to, because they said we have so many constraints when we pull down content that we just can't do it in an hour. There are a lot of other issues that the EU does not understand. So now they're negotiating with it. But I think they're focusing on the right subject. How can you pull off, accurately pull off con- material which is which is damaging? I, and I think they're focusing on the right issue. I don't know if they can do it in an hour, but I'll tell you one thing. Artificial intelligence is going to allow them to recognize this thing a lot quicker. Now, people are holding on to their old cell phones longer yep. and longer and longer. Mm-hmm. Now, a common comment that you hear from phone owners is, I'll probably wait until it breaks. <laughs> phone replacement has slumped since 2013. Well, they've gotten so expensive. Yeah, they're getting, and it used to be that consumers would buy a new cell phone about every 20 months. And that's because there was a progression of capacity that kept getting better and better and better and better. Well, now There's the, not cell, s- the cell phones are so good, you don't need anything any better. Mm-hmm. So now it's just a matter of how long can you keep it. And the other thing, too, $1,000 or $1,200 right. for an iPhone. Most just, people can't. It's just, it's just a little bit. Much and it's and it's, and there's not that much of incremental improvement, and so people are saying, uh, I think we'll just wait. In fact, in U.S., China, Japan, and U.K., these are the four largest markets. All have seen a slowdown or flat growth in the past year because people are delaying the purchase of a new phone. Now that gets me to the point that I think is very interesting. Mm-hmm. How can you extend the life? 
of your phone. Excellent point. Because there is kind of a built-in obsolescence in these phones. I mean, you remember um, uh, Apple was caught slowing the operating system down as the battery died so that the phone was so slow that he said, i got to get rid of this thing, it's too slow. And that was really a plan, I think, to force people just to get new phones, uh, to get a new phone so they could get something faster. Well, there is a way to actually maintain your phone. There are two reasons that the phone slows down. First, all your memory is used up, so you don't you don't you don't have right. enough memory to to operate. And secondly, your battery starts failing. So what you want to do is, if your if your phone starts, you want to you want to look at your memory and you want to just get rid of the stuff you don't use. You want to get rid of all the apps you don't use. Try to clear as much out of your memory as you can. Now, a lot of times the uh, the phone will keep stuff cached and it will tie up memory, and you can't clear the memory because you can't control the cache. And there's kind of a easy there's kind of a neat trick that works on the iPhone. Suppose you want to download a movie. Mm-hmm. And save it to your iPhone, but the movie is actually larger than the memory capacity of your iPhone. So what the iPhone will do, it won't download the movie because it can't, but it will clear all the cache, as much cache as it can in order to make room. So one guy ended up doing that, and and he ended up freeing up almost two gigabytes of space. Wow. So that is one thing that you can do to manage your memory. Now, the second thing is batteries. It makes a lot of sense to re- a battery is really only good for about 500 cycles. Mm-hmm. That's kind of and after 500 cycles it degrades by 20%. A battery typically is going to last about 2 years. Okay. So it makes sense to replace the battery after 2 years. Now if you've got an Android phone, you can replace it for 20 to 40 dollars. Some Android phones even have removable removable batteries. Boop, pop it in. Now, the Apple, unfortunately, does not have a removable battery, and that costs, you have to take it into the shop. If you get an authorized Apple dealer to replace it, that's $79, but it's worth it. Yeah. But the good news is that for this year, for 2018, because of what we call Slowgate, where, <laughs> where Apple was caught slowing down older devices, they have agreed to replace batteries for only $29. So I'd say get a new battery replacement and then keep your phone as long as you can until the features of the new phone are so compelling that you want to get it. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. And we'd like you to go to the Stratford University website, which, of course, is stratford.edu, and uh, check out the programs and tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.